everyone, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40-page competitive podcast giving you tips and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am, as always, your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me our good podcast host, Shaylin Allen West. Greetings. And our evil podcast host, Ben Jurek. Ooh, still the evil one. Still evil, still second in line. That's just the way things are around here. You can't put evil first. If you put evil first, we'd have to join the government. Well, it's my time of year. It's the spooky yeah. season. Spooky. Oh, yes. I may or may not have started sewing a costume. Hmm. Well, that actually kind of raises something that I've wanted to talk about for a little while here. Uh, we don't tend to talk a ton about the the hosts on the podcast here, just out of expediency, if nothing else. Uh, but I think maybe people are a little bit curious what other sort of like games and hobbies we're involved in. Uh, Shailene, you so you do costuming stuff then? Yeah, I do cosplay a little bit. Um, not as much as I used to, mostly COVID, you know. Yeah, that kind of puts a dampener on going to conventions. And uh, not going anywhere to show off the costumes. I like showing off my work. Right. I also play a handful of other miniature games, Malifaux notably. Um, haven't mm-hmm. played that in a while, but mm-hmm. yeah. And what kind of conventions do you do outside of Warhammer, obviously? Steampunk. Ah, steampunk. Very popular in the Northwest. Yes. Popular down here, too? Yeah, it's a pretty big thing in general at this point. Uh, Ben, what kind of stuff do you do? Well, I'm one of those people who has too many hobbies and not enough free time, so I Ah, kind (laughs) of have these things I hyper-focus on every now and then, but my stuff's Mm -hmm. all over the place. Um, uh, What do you do these days? Uh, lately, I play a lot of a uh, lot of D and D. Has been my COVID go to. Mm-hmm. Um, I both DM and I'm a player. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's not that, uh, I actually do a lot of LARPing uh, between Dystopia Rising, uh, a game called Bloodlines of Ethereum, um, and a few mm-hmm. other uh, smaller LARPs and LARPs I've played before, like Amgard and Belagarth. Some of them won't want to call themselves LARPs, but they're still LARPs. Um, right. So that, and- that's kind of the, been the major parts of my. Uh, my how I spend my weekends, my time, and where I travel to. And those are uh, the actual, like, uh, live-action sort of, like, combat games, yeah? Yeah, costuming, combat. Um, the the first uh, couple set there, like, Amgard and Belgarth are more um, sports foam tag, and the other ones are more immersive role-play-based. Sure. And then on, on top of that, I kind of, once again, I attend conventions, steampunk conventions. There's one I go to annually. Um, mm-hmm. There's, I kind of do all sorts of things. Uh, when I'm my more mundane stuff, I like cooking. I like riding motorcycles. I, you know, just relatively more normal stuff, I would, some would call it. Yeah, I've seen you doing uh, quite a bit of soup making as of late. It is soup season. Yes. And soups are pretty much always good it's hard to go wrong with a soup oh i've had bad soup but i I don't want to talk about it. not impossible but uh of of the things that you can get right soups are relatively easy yeah i'm only cooking for two people and i there's so many Mm. soups i want to cook so it's very difficult to cook a lot of soups um while also you know not making yourself sick of soup 
Right. Because uh, small batch soup is a little bit tricky, I imagine. Yeah, I, I still just cook the regular six to eight serving batches. Yeah, that's fair. And he, do you freeze it or whatever? Uh, there are some I'll freeze, some I won't. I won't freeze the cream-based ones. Um, oh, yeah, but... that sounds like a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, for my part, I, uh, uh, like Ben, I, I do a fair amount of role-playing. Um, Shaylin is one of our, our regular group members. I, I have a couple different groups, one with her and one with some other folks. Uh, mm-hmm. I also play quite a few different computer games, like most of us, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> but I do a lot of, uh, role-playing games and whatnot online. I used to do more live-action combat games, kind of like, uh, Ant Guard and whatnot, but that has sort of died off around the area where we're at here, so I don't really get to do that much anymore. Uh... But I have started picking up some uh, mobile games. Uh, I have been into the uh, Fate franchise for quite a while, so I've been playing Fate Grand Order, uh, as well as uh, a couple of the other ones that they're looking at releasing for that whole universe here. Uh, And that has been giving me something to do when I'm unable to play any Warhammer at all, sadly. Actually, Sean, I have a mobile game suggestion for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's a pretty popular game. You may have heard of it by now, but uh, Among Us um, is a very fun uh, multiplayer game. I haven't gotten into it yet. I cannot play that game. Really? Uh, It involves lying, and I'm bad at that. Uh, I'm, like, really bad at that, so I just get frustrated and upset. Because, yeah, it's it's a very social kind of game, as I understand. Yes, uh, it's a it's a very it's a, it's a it's a very easy entry level, just kind of like fun for the gameplay, not for anything else. It's a it's a social fun experiment. Um, there's a lot of different mm-hmm. game modes uh, you can kind of do. Where one where the, we played a mode where you don't actually have to lie. Um, oh, it's more wow. like a serial killer mode where everybody's actually talking to each other and suddenly their voices go quiet. Uh, so oh. you kind of make your own rules, but it's right. Uh, I I've enjoyed it quite a bit, and it's on I'll mobile. I have to give it a spin. Uh, let's just say my first experience wasn't very good. Yeah, that's fair. Everyone likes different things. So, let's go ahead and dive into our Warhammer topic for this week, which is one that we, uh, we, we've sort of neglected a little bit, because I think it's very critical to the entire concept of play in Ninth Edition, uh, and that's flipping primaries. Ben, do you want to talk a little bit about what flipping a primary means? So flipping a primary um, at its base description is your opponent holds a primary um, and then you take that primary from them and you now hold that primary. Specifically uh, in ninth edition in the command phase where in previous uh, the previous rule set or in the ITC rule set um, that was more of an at the end of turn situation. So the difference in what it means now is it means you need to live an entire turn of your opponent's um, response in order to prop to completely flip the primary. Otherwise, you can take it and then your guy dies and there's no actual gain or loss on the uh, on the objective. Yeah, and that's very important because it means you always have a chance to interact with your opponent before they are able to score any points for the primary mission. 
Uh, there's there's a sec- essentially like a one turn delay on that at all times. Mm-hmm. Has uh, well, you're you're still reacting to how your opponent has moved and such, but um, if they've stripped your ability to score from them, then it's like, well, okay, now I have to strip the, your ability to score from you. Yeah, and that's one of the most important things about this because. Uh, of your sort of 15 points you can earn each turn, uh, five of them, a, a full one-third, is relative. It matters how much you have compared to your opponent. And that's a big part of why flipping is so important, uh, because the objective counts on the boards are relatively low in terms of, like, numbers, so a two-point swing where they lose an objective and you gain an objective, essentially putting you two up compared to where they you were previously, means that you have a very good chance from going from being behind on total number of objectives to being ahead on total number of objectives. And that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ideal point of flipping the objective, and to put it in the most simplest of terms, is it's... It's a ten point score. Um, yeah. If you if you accomplish what you're trying to do, flipping the objective of minus one plus one, um, you will always almost always get a plus ten primary points, which is a whole secondary objective worth of scoring. So yeah. like that, it's if you have the choice of scoring a small secondary or flipping a primary, you always flip the primary. So don't get distracted by your secondaries when you can flip a primary instead absolutely yeah. the the primary objectives are extremely important in this edition so to be clear last edition we talked about the two point swing it's now a 10 point swing right uh it's it's actually very similar in the scoring concept to the way you would think about your itc missions last edition uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, you were always looking to, like, how can I get a 4-2 a to two turn or whatever, where I'm, I'm getting hold more and kill more, or I'm getting hold more and the bonus point. Um, this edition, your, your real goal is how can I ensure that I hold more, because that's still in, and mm-hmm. how can I make sure that I am getting the two other objectives, the hold one, hold two, or hold two, hold three, and try to deny my opponent as much of that as possible. Because very often, with flipping an objective, you will actually deny them not just the hold more, but also potentially the hold two or hold three, whatever the the sort of upper tier of the mission is. Oh, yeah. And if you can... 15 point to 5 point score your opponent more than once you've probably won the mission yeah uh, realistically speaking not a guarantee but very very good chances so that it's just it's very hard to recover from because there's so few turns in the game and so few opportunities to score and if your opponent is not you know, if you do that to them twice, they have to max out every other turn of the game in order to realistically come back from that. And not to mention, in combination with some secondaries, like let's say you establish like a quadrant of the board that you control and flip an objective on that they thought they were going to hold, mm-hmm. you you if you deny an entire secondary, 
on top of ju- of getting just one primary flip, that's a yeah. pretty easy flag to c- carry to victory. You're no longer you know sprinting side by side with your opponent. You're now a full couple lengths ahead because that's really hard to recover from. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And that's really the situation you're looking to establish when you do this, is you're trying to put your opponent down on score in a way that they are going to struggle to recover from, are going to have to take big risks and big swings that are not likely to work out. Yeah, and unlike previous editions, you can take a much larger risk as far as unit loss, because kill doesn't matter as much. It's really yep. about this hold. So, um, uh-huh. did you give up 300 points in units to accomplish this flip, and you know they can they nearly table you by the end of the game? Yeah, you did, but you, the score says different. The score <laughs> says what it yes. says. You you mm. still win the game. We're going to talk about a lot of very sacrificial strategies. I know a big favorite of Shaylin's. Uh, uh, yeah, it turns out I play an army that dies. Yes, but we're going to talk a lot about sacrifice strategies in this because they're often very clutch to being able to accomplish this score flip. Uh, yes. The one other thing that I think is really useful to talk about here is that this score flipping is especially important if you are going second in the game. Uh, Because when you're going second, you're constantly going to be reacting to what the enemy has done, which means you're sort of, you're down on tempo basically all the time. But if you can flip an objective like this, you've actually taken control of the tempo of the game, and now your opponent is having to respond to what you're doing rather than the other way around. And you have the opportunities to do this because your opponent is more often moving on to objectives first because they went first and they've gotten more movement phases than you have. Um, Uh So this sort of thing is especially critical to be looking at and planning for when you are not playing first turn. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about how you actually do this. Um, Ways you can take this objective, because you've got to get onto this objective somehow, and you've got to stop your opponent from controlling it. So what do you guys see as the easiest way to accomplish this? The first thing that comes to mind, I like to go by the phases here, is if you can do it in movement against a very weak unit that's holding up the objective... I like to just take a a unit that either has more models or uh, has or has obsec and I like to just put them on it, especially if it's a unit that doesn't mind fighting. Like I don't I won't mind, you know, sending 10 orcs to go stand in next to, you know, a couple guardsmen or a couple scions. Um, Mm -hmm. This is more of a softer flip. This is like a whole army combat situation. But if I don't have like if I need to advance onto something or you or in the flip side, if I'm Imperial Guard, I can move, move, move onto something. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to do that rather than, you know, be outside objective range and shoot them. Uh, I'd I'd rather be for sure beyond that objective and at least have that either contesting or a complete hold take on it. Right. Yes. Um, Contesting is always an option, although the way model counts work these days, you don't tend to contest. It's almost always someone controls the objective, except in fairly rare circumstances. Uh, But in many cases, a contest is basically as good as controlling. Um, But, yeah, the the very basic version, just move models onto the objective, uh, can definitely work out. Uh, and obsec models are particularly valuable in that respect. Yes, and there's lots of 
shen- moving shenanigans in the game, uh, from the dark metal crystal to warp time to just jumping out of a transport and getting that extra distance you needed. Absolutely. Uh, Grey Knights in particular have uh, a version of that that is actually very, very strong. Well, really two versions, but one that I was immediately thinking of in the... uh, Edict? uh, I was actually thinking of the insertion. The insertion's great because it lets you drop in out of uh, Deep Strike Reserve outside of three inches of the enemy instead of nine. Yes. Most people do not crowd objectives out to let you not be able to take one. And you can do it with obsec units, so you don't even need like a big squad or anything to steal. All from of my obsec can deep strike. Yep. Yeah, and I like to, you know, as I mentioned here, since I'm kind of moving through the phases, that this isn't nearly as effective a strategy as it was in prior edition because you had to last that whole turn. Elsewise, um, as you get as we move through the other phases, you'll actually see that as you get down in the phases toward the end of the turn, that the other ones are far more effective yeah the the big problem here is that the presumption is if you're just doing it through movement you haven't actually stopped the enemy from having stuff um you you've advanced one goal but not the other goal which is get rid of their units that are holding the objective um yeah and that's fine if you are something like a uh you know a squad of 30 orc boys or 10 blightlord terminators or something like that. Uh, you control that objective and it's like, that's cool. They're probably not going to push you off that. But if you're a somewhat more fragile unit, uh, say those 10 guardsmen that you move, move, moved onto the objective. Um, They're going to need a little help. Yes, they are. They are not going to last that full turn by themselves unless there's other stuff going on. Um so let's go ahead and talk about the next phase in the roll down here, which is the shooting phase. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 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 well, Shannon's like, well, what about the psychic? Well, you have you have the powers, which either do moving or shooting. <laughs> yes. You are not generally going to be able to clear an objective with the psychic phase, even if you were a psychic army. Um, as nice a thought as it is, you are probably not going to resolve 10 smites in a turn. That's... Not That's not allowed thing. anymore. <laughs> it's allowed. Smite caps out at warp charge twelve. It's not bloody likely. Yes, you are. You are never going to do it. So we are going to skip over the psychic phase. Apologies, Shaylin. Um, <laughs> the shooting phase is interesting though, because unlike the other phases, you don't really move at all in the shooting phase. Um, so you wouldn't think that it's really a way to take it. But it's sort of in filling that goal where you, if you only have one model on the objective, that's fine if they don't have any models on the objective. Or anything that can threaten that model on the objective. Yes. Um, so shooting is certainly not the best way to do this. Armies that rely heavily on shooting, such as Tau or Imperial Guard, are usually going to need to use some other tools to sort of ensure that their models get there and do what needs to be done. But it absolutely can contribute to it. As you bring your models up, you can shoot to weaken the enemy and then maybe follow it up with a charge or just stand there and kind of dare them to come to you. The other thing I was going to comment is uh, shooting lanes and board threat. 
Um, they may have a unit that they have to use to hold it. For example, it's their last obsec unit on the board. Mm-hmm. And if you put sufficient firepower in the right places, they may not be able to put it on an objective and have it stay there. Absolutely true. Um, one big thing to remember is that objectives are not going to be in terrain. They're usually going to be somewhere near terrain, which means they are typically a fairly exposed position. Uh, Units that move onto objectives are going to be in danger pretty much constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a key thing to think about here is the fact that shooting is one of the easiest ways to remove a unit from their objective, but it doesn't exactly give you the option to take an objective. So it's only accomplishing half of the flip. Um, You still have to have something in another phase or another unit uh, to kind of take control of this for you. Um, But at the same time, um, you can set yourself up for future turns and during deployment, uh, deploy yourself in such a way to be like, okay, I really want to flip. My plan is to flip this objective. Uh, Make sure all your units have line of sight there. Uh, Make sure you're not taking heavy penalties you shouldn't be taking. Make sure you don't need to take uh, an advance on your assault weapon penalties. There's there's a lot of small planning that you can do ahead to make sure that your shooting phases line up with the exact objectives that you want to flip. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when you flip an objective, like when you get units onto it, let's say you move a unit that shoots well onto it, make sure that they have vision to other objectives to, you know, keep doing their work. Because once again, if you accomplish this specific set of goals twice in a game, it's really hard to lose. Yes. And I think Ben makes a a really good point there with like, make sure that your, your unit on an objective can shoot to other objectives, because the big advantage to shooting is that you can combine shooting from multiple places on the board, wherever it's needed. So you have this sort of innate ability to threaten multiple different places with your shooting, and your opponent doesn't know in advance where that shooting is going to go. Uh-huh. So let's talk about maybe the most obvious way to flip an objective, but the one we've kind of been steering around so far, which is melee. Ah, murder hugs. Yes. Ninth edition is a very melee-centric edition overall. Uh, Armies that have strong melee are sort of by default in a good position, and armies that don't have strong melee are in a little bit of trouble overall um, because melee is probably the number one way to flip an objective yes uh the way you flip an objective is you literally charge in and as you're charging in you murder everybody and oh look it's yours you did you not only got there but you also took it away yep so one thing that i that i like to do here specifically is there's a lot of times where my unit's movement doesn't quite have the reach i need in order to get onto an objective um Mm -hmm. i could kill them and knock them off of it but then i'm not getting any points i'll actually go out of my way to not shoot a unit on an objective just so i can get that charge movement um yeah and then we also can't forget about our other two types of movement we get during our our fight phase which is your pile and your consolidate um oh yeah those are incredibly important, especially if you know you're going to finish off unit. Like if you come in completely erase something, that's a full six. You know, you have a, you have another three inches movement on that, and you mm-hmm. know a full six inches movement total 
among the rest of what you're doing. You don't have some of the tricks you used to in prior editions. Um, they have definitely have nerfed that quite a bit, but it yeah. didn't go away. Um, it's still very much Six there. Six inches and extra movement is still big. And it's very important to remember that they, they have changed some of those tricks, but a lot of them are still in place. If you declare a charge at a unit that you need to sort of like clear away, um, not every model in your unit needs to go and get within an inch of the thing you charged one model does and obviously you want to put enough models near it that you can clear it out whatever that's going to take um but there's nothing stopping you from moving some of the other models in that unit over towards an objective you you know you roll that seven or eight on your charge distance and it's like well this guy's going to move eight inches over here how we're going to daisy chain a couple of guys along and you know we're going to kill off your one character that was standing nearby and also claim the objective. You yeah, have an enormous amount of flexibility when it comes to movement in the charge and fight phases. And I hear some people talk about like wraps like they don't exist anymore. If you oh, can wrap something yeah. on an objective, you still do it. You still make your opponent spend CP and lose guys and like or if they mm-hmm. don't have the CP, you just get it like Yep. You, if you can get the wrap, you still do it. Don't don't ignore the wrap, guys. Yes. Um, yeah, wrapping is still good. If nothing else, a wrap is costing your opponent resources. Um, it may not automatically protect you. You can't rely on it the way you could previously to be sort of an absolute defense barrier, but it's still very valuable. Uh, and even more mm-hmm. so if you can get more than one of them. Yeah. Yes. I know in this edition you can't have objectives specifically on terrain anymore but mm-hmm. a lot of them especially on your quadrant ones are pretty are close enough to where you can hold it from behind obscuring terrain sometimes yeah. um and if you can use if you can use that charge movement or any of those other you know at any other time to try and either get squeeze behind some obscurings and you know this is more of a prevention while you're trying to hold it but you this mm-hmm. is you need to keep this in mind while you're trying to while you're taking that flip of okay i need to take it and then not get shot off absolutely um, and that's part of what wrapping does but if you can do the same thing with terrain it's just as good really yeah and uh for some types of terrain you know being on it is uh useful for example dense terrain um but even as ben pointed out like the fact that it is near the objective can be enough if you have obscuring terrain uh so absolutely make use of that terrain to give you that little bit of extra durability because again the goal here is essentially threefold you need to get onto the objective you need to get the enemy off of the objective and you need to be able to stay on the objective yourself because if you can accomplish all three of those things, that is your 15-point turn. That is 15-5-ing them. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how reserves and melee kind of relate to each other in this front. Because I think this is another thing that is extremely valuable. Yes. Uh, we mentioned before that with strategic reserves from the, the basic rule that everybody gets, it's really easy to get on an objective from that. They're all, they're all within a certain distance of the board edge. Yes, not all of them are within range for strategic reserving off a board edge, but many of them are. And if you have a built-in rule, such as some sort of deep strike, then obviously that gives you a lot more flexibility. 
yes. But uh, but where I was going with this is if you can make your charge more reliable with rerolls, with plus ones, whatever you need to do, that can make getting that melee flip so much easier for you. Because the unit you're using didn't get attacked because it wasn't on the board to be interacted with. It appears, and then it does its thing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to express how important planning is in this edition. Um, you're, oh, yeah. This is, this is definitely a, I thought this out one, two to three turns ahead of how my opponent would respond mm-hmm. and how I wanted to move across the board and take objectives. Um, with reserves and also speed, because with this edition, you're looking at a lot of biker units, and fast units and units that you can kind of deploy in a very neutral way and then overload one side or have units that, are, that almost are incredibly reliable um, at coming out of reserves and making their and making their charges such as you know blood angels and such there's yeah. there's just a ton of um, redundancy there and uh, that redundancy is kind of builds into something another topic that we wanted to lay on was a uh, is uh, durability um, and durability in numbers is also something putting multiple units on top of an objective or uh, just being able to kind of like float your entire army um, onto someone's weak side and having them be able to not really respond uh, is a really easy way to kind of put the game in both your tempo, flip an objective, and take out a huge chunk of your opponent's army if they're not deployed well. Yeah, that ability to be sort of uh, units in waiting um, is is very critical because your opponent can only respond to the information that you've presented them. So if you sort of say, like, I have four units in reserve and they can go anywhere I want, that presents your opponent with so many possibilities that it's very difficult for them to respond to. Uh, And that actually plays into, I think, our, our final point, which is looking at how many objectives there are in the board and how they're distributed in terms of deciding what you need to or want to commit to a given objective to flip it. Uh, Because there's going to be four, five, or six objectives on the board. How much you were willing to spend to take an objective should depend on how many objectives there are. Yes, and it should depend on what your opponent has put there to defend it. Absolutely. Uh, There is little to no point in going after their super heavily defended objective, it is much better to go after a weaker objective that they can't get their important stuff to quick enough. Yep. Yeah, and you end up with this like almost like a washing machine effect of of the circling of the entire board where your opponent goes after your weak objectives and you're going after their weak objectives and suddenly you're on the complete opposite sides from where you started, especially with your uh, fast armies that don't exactly want to uh, get in the thick and middle fight and just fight slug it out for the middle objective they're not glorious they don't want to (laughs) die for the emperor today (laughs) right and i think to that point one of the best objectives you can flip is your opponent's backfield objectives which tend to be very weakly defended uh, simply because they can't afford to leave a lot back there um, and are distant enough from the bulk of their forces in many cases that once you have flipped them, it is a big impediment to them to come back and undo that. Because even if you have just, say, five strike marines that jump into your opponent's backfield, kill off the the handful of models that were protecting that objective, 
and are now hiding behind a piece of terrain. Well, now they've got to maneuver all the way back to where that objective is, and that means undoing at least one turn of movement and maybe a lot more. That really will slow their game plan down and throw a wrench in things. Because if, if they just leave you back there, well, crap, now... Well, you, know, you pulled the words from my mouth of that one. I was going to say, I'm like, yeah. any opportunity that you can have that... Remember, your opponent's doing the same thing you're doing. They want yes. to... Yeah. Um, they're planning their turn out, their turns, you know, two, three times out. At least they're a good player. There's people that kind of don't really do that. But yeah. um, maybe your opponent should be planning their turns just like you, where they're kind of thinking out... They're already planning their turn three during their deployment um, mm-hmm. of how the board's going to go. If you can suddenly make their turn one, turn two completely the opposite of what they thought it was going to be yep. um, in you know in less than ideal uh let's go they're going to get a less than ideal score because they're they're plan to score a bunch and if you're if their plan has them you know struggling to score five even um yeah it's it's gonna yeah. be a real rough day um there there's a lot of mistakes to capitalize on here uh the big thing with flipping objectives um and i don't want to talk down on opponents is identifying mistakes um, mm-hmm. identifying oh, where yeah. your opponent goofed up, where you where you can easily take advantage of specific situations and exploit the hell out of them. Because at the end of the day, a, a primary flip is is an exposure of a mistake your opponent made. Um, you mm-hmm. don't want to be getting your objective flipped. The, yes. or, if you, <laughs> or, or if you did, you did it as, you know, as an opportunity or a bait, but the, once again, you, you're not tra- baiting to do a five to fifteen. You're you're doing yeah. it on it. Oh, I'll just flip it to a ten ten, which is one thing we'll talk about. Um, and uh, when we're talking about preventing, yeah. In fact, I think that is a a pretty good segue into things. Why don't we just take a short little break here for all of us to grab some refreshments from our quartermaster and maybe flip an egg. And then when we are back, we will talk about what to do when your opponent is flipping objectives on you and how to deal with that. Greetings, this is your good host. I am here to extend a special COVID offer to any and all gaming-related businesses that would like to advertise for free on In the Finest Hour. Times are hard, and we want to support you. Give us a jingle at inthefinesthour at gmail.com or message us on Facebook, and we'll hook you up with the advertising. And we are back. Uh, When we left off on things, we was almost on a little bit of a downer note because... Ben is is recommending that you get objectives flipped on you. Ben, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, no, it it doesn't exactly sound right. But I mean, your opponent's looking for the same opportunities and mistakes that that uh, that you are. But what you present to them may or may not actually be a mistake. Yes, the infamous. You can come over here, and then I will blend whatever touched it. Oh look! You kill. I killed everything that you ever loved. Yeah, there's there's going to be times when your opponent takes your objectives from you. Um, obviously, we don't want this. But if there is a block of ten ogren bullying up the the middle of the field, um, there may not be a lot you can do to actually stop them from getting onto an objective. 
And, and this is part of where some of the sacrificial play is going to come in, because uh-huh. um, you may just throw a crappy little unit on there and say, I have a four-man command squad holding this objective. Your Bulgren are going to have to kill that command squad to stop me from having the objective, but if they're on that objective, they aren't on any other objectives. Yes. And by the same token, um, as we talked about earlier with uh, moving units onto objectives and sort of like setting up your lanes of fire, um, you can set it up so that your opponent is able to get onto one of your objectives. And obviously, again, you don't want them to take your objective, but if they do get onto that objective, have your firepower set up so that you can immediately just kill them. Um, and, and say, like, yes, you are allowed to move your unit on this objective, and no, I can't actually stop you from getting onto it, but I will punish you for doing so. Uh, because at a certain point, attrition can win you the game just by virtue of, well, you have more, no more units left, and yes, you did deny me five points last turn, but now I'm going to get 15 points every turn for the rest of the game because you are not able to stop me. Yeah, a lot of games of Warhammer are not balanced. Um, there's going to be unbalanced armies and such, and some you're going to see a really just bulky, thick army that can just take and hold mid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, well, I guess I'm not holding that anytime soon. But you can you can kind of plan around that. Um, you there's still right. plenty of other objectives to go take, um, and you can you can you can do things to prevent them from taking it for a little while, or kind of like give them the opportunity to move off. But um, the big thing I want to focus on here is managing your line of sight to other objectives. You know that you probably can't hold or are going to have to give up. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Because this is where that durability aspect comes in, where. It's great to take an objective, but you have to be able to hold on to it for a full turn. And if your opponent may have the units to take objectives, and that's bad because you wanted those objectives, but if they can't hold on to them until your next turn because you have enough firepower to punish them for getting on to those, then... Again, not ideal, but still much better because you were able to punish them so heavily for attempting to do this. And this is particularly important because in these objective games where there's like five or six objectives, um, your opponent may have to spread their units out a lot in order to be able to take more objectives than you. Uh, If you're on two, that means they're going to need to be on three, and that may be spreading themselves very thin, especially if they also want to, say, be getting into melee with you. Um, And Uh you might be only holding your two backfield objectives. So it's like, yeah, you can take all these midfield objectives, but if you do that, you're not assaulting me. Yeah, I'd like to express how important it is not to spread yourself out too thin. Just because there's six objectives doesn't mean you need to be on five you just need to hold more yep so kind of make base your battle plan around that idea um because like while you may hold five you give up five uh, just as easy at that point Um, yes yes that's very true when you're only putting one unit on each objective it's not going to be hard to flip those objectives when your opponent decides to do something about it it's like oh you, you you put 10 guardsmen there and 10 guardsmen there and 10 guardsmen there and 10 guardsmen there 
Well, um... Stormbolter it all to death? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just sort of have to wander something into the general vicinity of those guardsmen, and they're going to evaporate. Yeah, the... Sometimes the best action here is not really taking that action. Um, if your opponent castled up on one to two objectives and you own three, mm-hmm. you don't need to reach out and grab the fourth if it's a risk. Now, if it's a no-risk move, such as like getting behind obscuring terrain and you know it's a 45-point unit that doesn't do a whole lot except hold objectives, yeah, you go ahead and do it. Um, but if there's a risk to doing something, don't take uh, risks you don't need to take. Yes. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case where your opponent is sort of bullying midfield, where they're controlling a whole bunch of those objectives in the center, and you don't have a realistic chance of being able to stop them from doing that, that's where that ability to come in out of reserves and take their backfield is incredibly valuable. Uh, Because the stronger their presence in midfield is, the weaker their presence in their backfield is going to be. And it turns out they only have so much army to go around. Exactly. So if you can just throw that cheap little 50-point unit into their backfield and take it away from them, well, now they have to cross all the way from midfield back to their own zone to take it, and probably all those melee units that are holding midfield really don't want to be moving back into their own zone for the second time this game. Um, it, it presents them with a very, very difficult choice. Yes. Uh, The other thing about that choice uh, in kind of the nuance of it is, is because you've made them burn time. Yep. Uh, You can give up an objective that puts them so far away from everything else they know and love that basically by seizing this objective of yours, they have committed to losing the entire board control. Yeah, if your opponent deep strikes in their blob of 10 Death Shroud Terminators into, like, the far back corner of the board that is 30 or 40 inches from anything else that matters, let them have it. Um, that That's theirs now. They committed 400 or 500 points to taking that one objective take all the other objectives because a full quarter of their army is over there guarding this single objective. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to be a hypocrite here for a second. I also want to tell people that uh, in preventing a flip, uh, if you had the first turn opportunity, which is one of the big complaints of this edition mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, to in a consistent way uh, spread, spread out and, take a bunch of objectives but still be able to kind of defend them all uh, with your ma- with the majority of the points of your army no matter where your opponent goes that's mm-hmm. the ideal situation when I, when I say spread out with you know some ability to defend yourself and when, yeah. I, when I what I what I don't mean is spread really evenly your entire army out and then have them not be able to kind of like interact with each other those far corners those long distances especially with stuff like terminators and slow moving units um, but like you know, with my orc army and trucks and buggies, I can kind of go anywhere on the board I want mm-hmm. uh, and be able to grab a bunch of objectives and turn one. So um, if you can kind of set up a situation where they need to pick what they want to try and flip and there's not a good choice, you're in a good spot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about actually defending an objective. Uh, let's say you have a critical objective, say the the objective in the center of the board or something that you really can't afford to lose or else you're probably going to lose the game. Um, How would you go about actually defending that? How do you stop them from getting the objective? Uh, 
two ways that I can think of right away. Uh, first is uh, redundancy. Don't just put one thing on there. Put two things on there. Whoa, Make whoa, it that whoa, much whoa, harder. Whoa. Shailen, we'd try not to work with numbers like beyond mortal comprehension here. Two things? Yeah. You think people have two units in their army? Well, a Grandmaster Dread Knight and a unit of Terminators is a lot harder for an opponent to chew out. Yes, and that's actually very important because it's something a lot of people misunderstand about OBSEC. Even a single OBSEC model on both sides, say if your opponent has Tens Guardsmen and a Lehman Russ, and you have ten term or say you have one Terminator and ten uh Purifiers. Purifiers. You both have eleven models on that on that objective, and thus the objective is contested. The fact yeah. that they have ten obsec and one regular, whereas you have one regular or one obsec and ten regular, is completely irrelevant as long as both people have a single obsec model in range. That's a very important distinction, and mm-hmm. that's part of why. Just having some obsec makes a huge difference. Those five terminators plus the grand master make it so that your opponent can't just sneak some little guardsman. Because if all you have is the grand master, one guardsman is enough to do it. Yes. But one guardsman will not steal it from those five terminators, and that's critical. Exactly. Uh, the other thing you can do um, is block it out. Those five Terminators take up an awful lot of space. They encircle that objective. Nothing is getting on that objective. And this is very specifically blocking them, like, physically, so that their models do not have a way to move within three inches. If your Terminators are (coughs) 3.1 inches away from the objective, physically Uh interposing themselves, they can't get onto that objective without removing your models. Yeah, and I kind of want to give a a shout-out here to our previous episode about transport play really quick. Yes. Because um, a transport can do twofold. You have that peeling the onion, Mm -hmm. you have that multiple units, Mm -hmm. and you have something that can completely block something out. Um, Transports are usually pretty big and bulky models. There are not very many small transports. No. Even clown cars are kind of big. Yeah, the 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 Harlequin and uh, Dark Eldar transports are like the smallest ones in the game, but even they still occupy occupy like five to six inches of table space, and that's not uh-huh. a small amount. Yeah. So the the full interposition there, where you block out, oftentimes in a ring formation or a blob. Um, so that they have no way to place themselves on the objective is obviously very strong, but sometimes you may not have enough models to completely do that. You can still partially interpose yourself in a the way The 80-20 that will... solution. Yes, exactly. Um, if you don't know that they don't have any deep strikers, they're going to have to just physically move, you can place your unit in their movement lane such that they won't be able to get past you onto the objective. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they do have deep strikers, so you put them in the way, so if they come in off deep strike, they can't get there. Yes. 
my favorite way to partial interpose is either if I'm in a spot where um, I kind of want to drive them into one direction that I can easily countercharge with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give them the opportunity to go on the other side of me and make me like force me into like a nine or a ten inch charge at the end of all the movement. Like that's it's kind of garbage. Right. Um, if you you can do it that way and kind of give yourself a more ideal situation. Um, and most ideal is once again you can kind of create these little traps. Um, my favorite type of trap is with heroic interventions, um, where it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, you can you can finish your charge here. Um, I have this character uh, that's you know gonna rip you apart, but you can do it. Go ahead. Yes, heroic interventions are incredibly powerful when it comes to defending an objective because they give you such a wide radius. Even just the basic three-inch heroic intervention that is common to all characters. Um, if you're on a 40 millimeter base, that's like almost eight inches of space that you have that one model is protecting. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That is a very big chunk of the board. And lots of characters beat shit up in melee. That's kind of a thing they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I look at my gas coal on his, uh, on his giant base. I'm like, oh, wow, he, he can kind of take whatever he wants. Yes, uh, if you have a Dreadnought or a Knight character, oh yeah, they're, they're going to take a whole section of the field. And as Shailen mentioned, like most characters are very bad for things in melee. They may not be enough to completely wipe out a unit by themselves. Some characters will. Your, your Ragnar Blackmanes or your uh, Chaos Knights are going to... Sc- just sweep a whole squad off the board by themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But other characters may only do, say, three to six casualties to a unit. But that's enough to trigger a morale check, and that may be enough to ensure that they don't have sufficient quantity of models to force you off. Uh, if they move a ten-man squad in and you kill six of them, well, your four-man unit is now enough to keep that objective from them. The other thing in Heroic Intervention I want to bring up isn't just about the combat. Um, it's about the movement and a little bit of mood blocking. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. If you have the opportunity to, and some people kind of can't really piece this together. You kind of have to show them this one because this is more kind of an advanced technique. Um, is when your your, your your Heroic Intervention movement happens um, at the end of their charge phase before they consolidate mm-hmm. uh, or before they pile in. Um, if they can't get on their objective like, if they can't get on the objective with a charge move and they need the pylon move, you can spoil that. You, oh, all yeah. you got to do is move your guy completely either into an imposing position or, my favorite, is touching their bases. Um, yep. They, they can't move closer. They're touching. Uh, so you can block off a lot and screw up some combats. And this is, and this is just a helpful tip in combat in general. Um, and, and, and not it's to mention okay on an objective. kill this character if it means not losing 15 points. Yes. Yeah, and well, not even having them just die, just having them get, you can screw up their how they're going to fight, but oh, only these two guys get to fight now because there's no way you can pile in in this, in this direction or because yeah. um, you can, you can pile, you can hurl intervention in such a way where they can't move like half their group back in the combat with your troops that are in combat. Let's say you have like right. a character uh, and defending some guardsmen. Suddenly only two of their guys can fight guardsmen while the other eight can only attack your character. Yeah. <laughs> That character counts towards the closest model stipulation there, which can affect the way they're able to pile in and consolidate, and that's incredibly important. 
Mm-hmm. Heroic intervention is one of the best tools you can have. If your codex has a stratagem that enables it or a trait or something like that, you should definitely be looking at it this edition. Uh, because those those heroic interventions, whether they are three inch or if you were lucky enough to have a six inch one, are extremely powerful. And the factions that have access to heroic interventions for non-character models, because there are more and more of those these days, um, uh-huh. those are even more powerful. You really have to be very wary of those demons of chaos or space wolves or harlequins, because they can just intervene right into you. Yeah, my I want to give a little shout out to uh, the just the interrupt stratagem also. Um, mm-hmm. yep. If your opponent attacks with not you know, with a different unit first or leaves it in such a spot where you can, where you have a unit that has an opportunity to interrupt and move and do basically the same thing mm-hmm. um, here, you do it. Uh, you spend that two points to save the objective because um, yes. you may not have been able to interpose then, but you can interpose, you can interpose now. Um, Cause you're like, Oh, I guess I'll just, I'll just interrupt and I'll suddenly you have no way of getting on my objective or suddenly I have more troops here. There's, mm-hmm multiple scenarios where this plays out but don't forget that you can still you can use the interrupt strategy to suit to such the same way um and win the game i've definitely won the game on heroic interventions or uh interrupts just being well timed and not even in like their combat just movement right uh as much as we talked about the value of being able to move multiple times during the fight phase in the sort of offensive uses of flipping an objective uh, defensively, you have the tools to screw up those movements and and basically say to them, I'm not going to let you do the thing you needed to do. Uh-huh. And, the, and the most base defense thing that we don't want to forget is zoning. Um, sure. We talked yes. about overloading the board and, you know, on the offensive side and flipping it. If you have, like, triple layer thick of, like, of dudes zoned and you're 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 if you're not you're nine deep strike zoned out and then your guys and then got six inches more away got more guys like they if they just can't declare charges on any anything valuable um other than like your screening unit then they don't have the ability to suddenly just like overload a side and flip an objective so if if you don't want to get something flipped zone the heck out of it yes Uh, you can you can invest resources to prevent them from being able to flip objectives. And judging how much you can afford to invest in a, a given section of the board is going to be a huge part of deciding who controls what and where they're leaving weak points. Because there's going to be a weak point in your defense somewhere. You need to decide where that weak point can afford to be. Yes, uh, as I say about art. Uh, the difference between Jackson Pollock and a two-year-old is intention. Make yes. it intentional. That is your choice. So let's let's talk about one more section on defending objectives that we've we've kind of glossed over, but I think is actually pretty important. Uh, and that's what I would call a bouncer unit. Just something big and beefy that is standing on an objective that your opponent doesn't want to come near. Maybe they can't heroically intervene maybe they're just positioned in such a way that like yeah you could get onto this objective but then you'd be right next to me um these kind of units are also very valuable and this can basically be anything with short range firepower be that melee or shooting Uh yeah 
Yeah, so my, my big thing about bouncer units is that um, these are the more than likely going to be your middle table holders. You're not going to see these too often in corners or um, hiding away. This is your, I'm taking this and this is mine. Um, mm-hmm. And this is kind of where you kind of play footsie with your opponent because a lot of times they're going to have their own version of that. Um, they might right. collide sometime. They might not. You might be playing, uh, might we play the game of having them not touch each other. I've seen that too. Um, sure. But you, this is the unit that, you know, their their whole job in life is to literally find an objective, sit on it, be incredibly durable, be almost impossible to move. Um, and these are your high point costed uh, guys. That That's their job. You're going to spend, you know, a good quarter of your points on supporting this unit. Uh, and the unit itself like this is this is that unit's job this is your go-getters um this this is who you depend on to kind of really be the focal point of where you want your opponent to even try Uh and those are definitely the top end version uh i think it's worth understanding that there are sort of lower tiers of this you know you you have your 450 point ultra beef unit that is going to take your opponent's entire turn and maybe then some to get off an objective um but a lesser version of that is still going to be useful five terminators are still a lot to push off an objective especially if they're minus one to hit yeah any 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 sort of defenses that can make that more difficult will give a significant impediment to your your opponent um, and having stratagems that you can use reactively in that sense is also going to be very useful because you'll be able to decide whether it's worth it to invest those resources. Yeah, if you look at a lot of ninth edition lists currently, um, you'll see a lot of these smaller bouncer um, units, and, and you'll see the big ones too. But you also see them taken side by side with little ones. Like, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, in my orc world, there's a lot of lists out there that just take three mega knobs, and they're you know two groups yep. of three, one group of three. That that little bouncer unit, like you, you, if they're off holding an objective, it's only like a hundred some points to basically make someone think twice about trying to take something from you because they're definitely not going to take it in melee too easily unless they dedicate something with way more points. It's kind of a point per pound type of deal uh, situation mm-hmm. here. Yeah, oh, yeah, because that's where you can say like, oh, I've put my mega knobs on this objective over here, just three of them. Um, do you want to send your big beater unit over there to take that from me? Because I, I won't be able to stop you if you do, but then that means your your unit is over there, not somewhere else. Yeah, you, you, you're forcing their hand. You're forcing their hand to use a lot of firepower in order to flip it versus just, oh, I'm going to kill, you know, 10 guardsmen and boom, the objective is either no longer held or flipped. Um, and then uh, I kind of, that kind of leads me into the last little thing here is uh, is reversing a flip. Um, or essentially mm-hmm. what I what I like to focus on is, is trading because that, that's, that's kind of its own flip where if you can take an empty objective and then shoot someone off uh, an objective they are barely holding. Um, that is the like the lowest risk, most ideal situation mm-hmm. um, is you, you, you're still getting that, that point flip um, because once again, six objective max maps, not all the time that all six of those are actually being held. Uh, you know, if you, if you delete someone off a unit and then you fly up to a other side, you know, your other side of your deployment or like a middle objective that kind of, that no one was contesting at the time, mm-hmm. that is still the same point total flip. Yes. 
Uh, this is where you do really want to be looking for, like, okay, they've gone heavy on my objective to take it. Where have they removed their forces from? Uh, because losing an objective on your turn, obviously not great, but survivable. If you can do the same thing back to them, you've prevented that 15-5. Um, a 5-5 turn, not ideal, much better than getting 15 5 Oh yes. And then uh, this is in this is in the really strategic play of, you know, we're not just going to run our armies at each other, middle of the table, fight and see who wins. Um, a lot of this game is move is, is a lot of moving around, a lot of you know taking advantage of places that were held or like or just avoiding that giant death ball your opponent's coming at you. If that entire you know if fifteen hundred points of dudes are coming after one objective, leave. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> You you just need to hold one more than them most of the time, guys. It's not complicated. You can just yep. leave. Like, if they're, if they're spending all their points to hold two objectives, just, just leave. It's okay. Yeah. Let them have those two objectives. Take three other objectives. Mm-hmm. Because now you're winning. And yeah, they sure do have those two objectives. But you can often spread yourself out of their reach such that they are not going to be able to stop you if they've committed that heavily to those two. And this is really a very key part of Ninth Edition, is taking objectives is important, but it's all about how much you're committing. You're trying to take as many objectives as you can while committing as little as possible. And any time you can take an objective by committing less than your opponent did, that's where you're coming out ahead. This is why flipping these objectives like this is so important, because if they put, you know, four or five hundred points onto an objective and you flip it with a hundred points, that is a tremendous win for you. Yeah, and as I said earlier in the cast, this is a lot of this is capitalizing on not just mistakes, but let's just say something didn't exactly go your opponent's way. Let's say they failed a five-inch sure. charge or something like that, um, yep. and they're just kind of stuck in the middle. In the middle, there, you're like, "Oh, um, well, this is an easy way to score 15." You 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 take every single shot you can to exploit those situations. Absolutely. Um, even like even if it's even if it's unlikely, or even if it's just you know, you have to identify where mistakes were made and the opportunity to score those those 15 to 5s because those are going to make the most difference because a lot of the time competent opponents are going to score pretty well on their secondaries um mm-hmm. and the secondaries in this edition are per- are not really that hard to score um yeah. and then yeah that this is where the the your competence and your skill will show um is in your ability to force that um there is some admission there by a lot of people that you know having the first turn does give you a little bit of an edge in this t- style of gameplay. Um, but being able to respond and like if you go second and you score a flip, it's mm-hmm. it sets the tempo for the rest of the game. It absolutely mm-hmm. does. Going first is an advantage, but it is not an absolute advantage. You can still lose even if you're going first, as many many people have proven already in this edition. I'm going to comment. I have stolen objectives because my opponent went first and let me be able to charge onto it. Yep. Yeah, and though, that, though a there's, there's a lot of mistakes to take advantage of. That, I mean, that's that's flipping it. Like, if someone comes onto my objective and expects to hold it, and I'm like, oh, sorry, you didn't you didn't think this through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
not only I'm going to kill a thousand points of your army, I'm going to 15-5 you now. Yes. Thanks for thanks for getting too aggressive. Like being aggressive is kind of a big thing in this edition. You, you that can't be as passive as you could be before, um, but you can still definitely be overly aggressive. Oh yeah, commit to what makes sense, not what you want to do. Yes. So hopefully we have uh, sort of spelled out just what it means to flip an objective and why it is so critical to this important to this edition uh because i i'm very much in the camp that like flipping objectives is going to be what defines ninth edition and the the codexes that get a good way to do that are going to do well and the codices that don't are gonna kind of do poorly um we haven't actually seen any of the books be released yet so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out but I think that is going to be a very defining feature of the edition here. Yeah, I feel like we're going to see a lot more onus on the magic word of durability. It's pretty important. We've touched on it a bunch of times through the podcast, but you've got to stay alive. You've got to have units that can survive somehow. And well, I was saying the new books seem to be going that direction is my... Uh... Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of swinging a little bit back that way. Even though this is a very killy edition, they're giving ways to get durability in it, which is interesting to see. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if any of you have questions or thoughts or comments, there's something that we missed or something you'd like to talk about or a point you didn't understand... Uh, or maybe an army list that you you want some thoughts on and you'd like to contact us, we are in the finest hour at gmail.com. You can send us a word there. You can also find us on Facebook as well as Patreon, where we are also in the finest hour. And if you really appreciate what you've done and you'd like to throw us a little bit of money, then for five bucks a month, you can get access to not only our private Facebook and Discord, so you can have uh, a little bit more personal conversations, but you also get the episodes that release early periodically as we do our various crosstalks and sort of bonus little things like that. And you help us buy all the equipment that we need and pay for our hosting and whatnot uh, and all the ways that keep this whole thing running. So thank you very much to everyone who's done that already. We really appreciate what you've done for us. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow for his awesome artistic skills and vision he has lent to our podcast. Definitely helps us set the mood every time. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to thank... Are the person who provides our awesome sounds, Dank Muse, for uh, the sounds that he provides us. I kind of flubbed that there, but um, good enough. You can you can find him on on Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. All right, I think that wraps us up for the week. Next week we're going to be talking about the primary missions. We already covered all the the secondary missions, so we're going to discuss the primaries and how they're placed and the way they should be influencing your gameplay. So, I hope everyone looks forward to that. But for this week, I have been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen West. Ben Jurek. Thanks for listening. <laughs>